0: This episode comes to you amongst an unprecedented lockdown of the UK. It's surreal and it is unnerving. But what I have noticed out of all of this is the power of community and coming together. We're also acutely aware of the vital role that farming plays in our lives. And so it is rather apt that my guest this week is Guy Singh Watson, founder of Riverford. I recorded this conversation with Guy in the heart of Soho a couple of weeks ago and it was a conversation fuelled by Guy's rallying cry for governments to sit up and make real change to support small businesses and our high street. Little did we know what the weeks ahead would hold for us all this episode also marks the end of series seven and we'll be taking a break before returning with series eight but don't worry shortly i will be coming back here with a special series so keep your eyes on my instagram to hear more I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not on the High Street and Holly & Co. And I'm the UK Ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life, and my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs, and those who just simply inspire me, and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to
2: bring your frown
0: Hi, Guy. We are in Soho, a far cry from the farm. We were thinking, weren't we, to try and get me onto a farm to talk to you.
1: Yeah, you got me a bit off my patch today. Off
0: the patch, (laughs) exactly. So we're in Soho at the moment. And thanks so much for meeting me because, well, we're going to talk about it. You have been a real inspiration. And some of the things that we're going to talk about have, oh my gosh, opened my mind to ways of doing business differently. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thank (laughs) you. So let's go to the beginning. You were born and raised in Devonshire countryside, the youngest of five children. What was your rural childhood like?
1: Uh, Well, as you say, youngest of five. My dad was a um, tenant farmer. My mum was also very involved with the farm, but mostly in the house. And always amazing food, lots of hard work, you know, with You know, I was helping my dad muck out the pigs when I, by the time I was five, probably, and you know, just stomping around the farm in my wellies, always wanting to be part of what was going on. You know, wanted to be a farmer from from as young as I could want to be anything really, yeah.
0: And the farm was 120 acres in Riverford. Is that right? It, it was...
1: started off, I think, 120 acres as a Church of England tenancy. That was 1951 when uh, they they took that on, and it grew over my childhood to to 500 acres, which was quite a big farm.
0: But it was it was. I found it fascinating researching this. He had a very pioneering idea in introducing the first tractor to the farm, and it was worked by horses before then. And your mother, by his side, raising you and four siblings, working on the farm. And I heard she was also a phenomenal cook, founding Riverford Farm and Dairy together. Was it quite an entrepreneurial? I know we use the word entrepreneur now, yeah. but was it entrepreneurial it when was, you look back?
1: It was actually. I mean, my dad. I mean. You know, and I think we've all probably inherited it. it. Was He was never happy to just do what his neighbours were doing. So that did mean one of the first people to get a tractor and then a combine and he was always experimenting with different enterprises on the farm. You know, we opened the farm to the public and had a farm tourism exercise, uh, enterprise in the in the 60s, I think. You know, so he was just so far ahead of his time in many ways but, but he never really did anything well enough to make money out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that was he, was he was a man he had of all great the ideas. God, I, I, yeah. I reckon I
0: recognise that notion. Yes, yeah, he was lots too, of ideas. But- too
1: easily distracted by the next idea and didn't spend enough time perfecting the one that he was working on. And and uh, and then if you combine that with the fact that he was really selling commodities, selling on you know milk largely, so there was no potential for him to you know increase the price of of, of what he sold to pay for what was frankly his incompetence sometimes (laughs) he would have been the first to admit that I think and uh yeah so it was pretty hard and he was uh you know the other side of being part of an entrepreneurial thing is he was you know for all my childhood on the verge of bankruptcy borrowing money from anyone that he could you know and I have to say that side of it you know and one should be aware of this is part of you know was pretty bloody miserable actually Mm. you know to live your Mm. childhood In in what was sometimes quite a stressful environment, worrying about money and the bank manager Mm. and the landlords and so on. And the
0: fact that you kids saw that.
1: Yeah, we saw saw that. And we're all actually, I mean, I have taken a lot of risks in my life, but I would still fundamentally say that I'm kind of quite cautious.
0: And do you think when you um, look back, because you were helping out from the age of five, Mm That's, you know, what the toughest, well, farming anyway is the toughest, one of the toughest jobs out there um, in terms of the physicality, but the hours and the, you know, the relentlessness, I suppose. Seeing that from a child and seeing, mucking out, as you said, at five, and ov- obviously your siblings all got involved as well. Mm. Did you feel that you learned some things from actually physically having to participate as almost part of a team?
1: Well, I learned what hard work was. Yeah. I suppose the other thing that I did learn well, I learned lots of things from my father, mostly how not to do things. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing he was really, he was a pretty awful manager in many ways, but he absolutely import, appreciated the importance of businesses and investing in people to the success of a business, you know. And uh, so I think he was, again, very ahead of
0: his time. And so some entrepreneurs talk about starting the school tuck shop and things. Is it right that you um, sold manure um, from the garden gate at a yeah, young age? Yeah,
1: I don't know. Yeah, we had logs and manure and eggs and then I kept sheep. But my first truly successful um, enterprise was, was, was growing marijuana behind the, um, behind the farm uh, slurry pit. <laughs>
0: And what was school like for you? You know, do, you were sort of combining two worlds, did you feel?
1: Yeah, I felt like an outsider. I was, I, lo- I loved the farm. I think I did genuinely love the farm, but I think a lot of my um, involvement and hard work at an early age, you know, when I look back and I, actually, I, I do regret this, that I threw myself so much, you know, as a child, really, and it was all a sort of desperate attempt to get my father's approval. I mean, mm. I can say that after hours of therapy, but, I mean, at the time it was kind of all-consuming. And I think, you know, I was a proper farm boy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. middle-class farm boy, but, I mean, that did, and that did set me apart from my peers and and I kind of regret that. And I love seeing my own children when they're growing up really embracing, you know, whatever is culturally appropriate at the time and and... and you know, and really enjoying that and the friendships that they have that I don't think I was so good at. I just went back and caught rabbits and fish out of the river yeah. and, and chased yeah. my sheep around you know
0: and, and and did and did was there anything that did catch your eye at school? Was there something that you think gosh if I if I wasn't such a farm boy, actually that really fascinated me
1: well you know it's funny that actually i I did really enjoy I was quite creative and I wrote. At primary school, quite a lot until... But I'm, I'm really dyslexic and I had really good teachers at that time who somehow it just didn't matter that, you know, my P's were B's and, yep. and I even tried to write from right to left. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But they, they seemed to be okay with that. But when I got to secondary school, it all kind of fell apart really and I realised that actually, you know, I, I could barely write. Because and we were just talking read. about this software, yeah. weren't we? That yeah. almost,
0: you know, this this name for it, dyslexia. Yeah. We talk about it now. I was just sharing with you that yeah. so many people on this podcast it's have been dyslexic. Yeah, how
1: so many entrepreneurs? And I never know. Is the result is that because? They can't make things work conventionally because they want to write yeah. from right to left. So yeah. they find yeah. ways around it. They find innovative ways of solving the problem. Or is it something in them that just makes them different anyway that they are more innovative than other people and that's somehow correlated to dyslexia? I'd love to know that. I mean, it, but I mean, there is clearly a correlation in there between entrepreneurial achievement and dyslexia you yeah. just hear it all the time absolutely
0: yeah. but you were obviously very bright because you followed your passion for agriculture and you went on to study agricultural mm. and forestry science at Oxford University yeah right so you know not so bad you know no, and, no, and, was, and, and then you went on yeah. to a management consulting where you eventually ended up in New York so what was it this was all in the 80s what was this time like in your life
1: well, the 80s was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> I, um, I've heard. Yeah, So, <laughs> um, yeah. no, I, I came, I, you know, I did go to Oxford and studied agriculture and, and I did get a first. And that did mean that when two years later I'd, you know, it was pretty clear that the family partnership wasn't going to work for me. I was just too stubborn and independent and left. That did, I'd went up to London and got a, a job as a management consultant. And within six months I was... You know, leading team, including people who had studied and got MBAs and so on, and then sent to New York to open their office there. I mean, I was extraordinarily good at it, I suppose. I mean, and, and that does. But it was all out of uh, I just have always had, if, I can, if you can't understand it from, you know, first principles, if you can't figure it out for yourself, it, it's probably bullshit. And and I just think so often that is true in business. And, and somehow I managed just to...
0: Just go back on what you just said there. What do you mean, first principle? Well, you know, when you get a
1: whole load of words and someone's making a presentation and it's not quite clicking with you mm. and you think, oh, God, am I thick? I mean, it's probably that actually they don't really get it themselves. that You know, they're just talking crap. So, um, <laughs> and and so often that is true. You know, it things is things true. that you think that are vogues in business, and a few years later, and you think, oh, that's just stupid. And a few years later, it's acknowledged that there is a stupid, stupid thing, and it's passed, and everyone's forgotten about it. And that particular brigade of management consultants have invented a new mantra. Yeah, no, I I I, I think having sort of faith in, in in you know common sense, really. I mean, business you know it should be common sense actually even to quite a high level you know mm. you know bankers mm. should be mindful of that after 2008 yeah you know lending all that money to people who clearly couldn't pay it back was
0: probably not a good idea yeah. and um uh, yeah. i i just couldn't agree with you more just it just puzzles me before we move on you say that you were at secondary school you felt like you couldn't read or write and yet you end up at oxford university how did you how did you get over those Okay
1: well I went to the local primary and then secondary and then my father did I was pretty miserable at 15 16 and uh, he did he sent me to private school for two years and I probably wouldn't have got to Oxford without that to be honest and uh, I still think there was something quite liberating about the the education at Oxford I mean, obviously that's the only experience I have, but I think there was more emphasis on kind of thinking for yourself as opposed to if I'd gone to a regular agricultural college, why, or Sirencester or something. There was a lot of emphasis on ecology at at, at Oxford and, and that really laid the foundations for what I was then going to do uh, when I got into organic farming a few years later.
0: Well, you returned in 1986 to Devon where you decided to convert it... Um to farming organically so you you came back to the family farm is that right? Well, and, was, so I
1: came back from Oxford, worked for a couple of years, yes. milking cows wherever you know <laughs> slightly didn't get on with the family, left two years away as a management consultant and then came back in eighty six and and started the business, having had some experience of i suppose business in a broader context and and experienced just how brutal you know markets can be and you know, just thinking that you can have a thriving business by being the lowest cost producer and, you know, there's always someone who can do whatever you're doing cheaper. You know, unless you really have the the, the wherewithal to, you know, be the cheapest producer at huge scale and whatever, it's it's constantly thinking, oh, if I just get a bit bigger and buy a, the next machine up, everything will be all right. It just very seldom is. When I hear people building their businesses around those sorts of assumptions, it always makes me scared for them.
0: So it was a big life change. Now you were coming back, and this big idea. What did this mean to you? What what, what what was that moment you you decided right? You're going to go for it.
1: Well, I I really decided that I was unemployable. Okay, um, <laughs> I did. I <laughs> it's <don't>... that realization. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. You know, I'd work for this firm, and uh, and actually, it, I think I started perhaps developing some sort of you know moral conscience or something. I felt what I was doing was just morally bankrupt you know people were lying as a matter of course you know mm-hmm. you know when whilst doing research and, and I and I found that I was the only person in the office who had a problem with that and plus the fact I just hated being in an office in an office anyway and I, I, I sort of towards the end of those two years I just realized I was going to have to start my own business and I started thinking fairly when I lived in New York uh, on Union Square there was a farmer's market outside, so, you know, I used to put my suit on and I'd go outside and I'd chat to the farmers before I went to work. You know, and I really I shared so much more with them than I ever did with the people at work. So, uh, and I, so I kind of, I think that sort of was starting to, and some of them were producing food organically and that started shaping my thinking a little bit. And then when I did finally uh tossed the office keys into the Hudson River, which was did you really? i'd really did. Yeah, that was it. I'd had enough. <laughs> and just I walked out. That. It's and, like a scene in a movie, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I came I did mess around, so boats for a bit in the Caribbean and then came home for Christmas, thinking I was just coming home for Christmas. And uh and then sometime in January I was out in the field with a plough and growing vegetables. So, um yeah, I knew I wanted to be outside. I knew, I knew I I knew I couldn't sell. Actually, I'd found that out. That I was a very poor salesman. So it had to be something that was, didn't require kind of repeat selling. And I, and I just oh, vegetables. You know, people are gonna. And then in our particular area down in Devon, it was quite alternative. And I think it was the very, very start of the growth in the kind of organic market. And as a management consultant, we'd spent a lot of time looking for whatever the new market was going to be. And there it was on my doorstep. And that seemed like the thing to do.
0: Supermarkets at the time, in that late 80s and 90s, it was an era of cheap value, wasn't it? And businesses like Tesco were dominating and people didn't really know about organic produce, although it was now coming up. What was um, the impact on Britain's farming community at that point?
1: Of supermarkets?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know, everything was bought on price. It was all commodities. There was a total imbalance of power between the supermarket buyer and and the, the farmer and um and the farmer got screwed i mean and uh, that meant you know that drove the smaller producers out you know ever during my lifetime the kind of consolidation of businesses which is still going on actually probably at an accelerating pace you know every you know the drive was yeah to produce food more cheaply and uh, you know that involved scale and that involved more inputs of fertilizer mm-hmm. and um pesticides, you know, in order to achieve those sort of consistent uh, yields. And I think in the vegetable sector, it was particularly brutal at during the um, 80s and 90s. And, and it also coincided with uh, supply chain rationalisation, as uh, the supermarkets called it, which meant that they didn't actually want to buy from even moderate sized producers. They wanted a category manager who would supply them with all their salads 12 months of the year. And so they would effectively out source, you know, all their buying to someone. Uh, and uh I did actually come very close at a certain stage to being a, a supplier to Waitrose and Sainsbury's, but I just fell the wrong side of the supply chain yeah. rationalisation. I even started building a pack house at one stage and I'm so glad that I didn't um, because, you know, we we would never have been anything like big enough and would have been just crucified. Was
0: it, was it almost... Um you either had to participate or you knew almost your fate. So even you were, you know, at that point in time, you had a decision to make and it was the allure, what of scale of some consistency or... It's,
1: I mean, to be honest, you know, nobody's made a fair return out of agriculture in my lifetime, really, without the taxpayer propping them up. You know, so, you know, through the common agricultural policy and the... um, Area payments, you know, roughly £100, I think now about £85 an acre a year. That's what's kept farming going, not, not what supermarkets have paid for the food.
0: But it was in, was in early 1990s, am I right, that you came up with the idea of distributing your produce in a very modern way through the veg boxes. And you started out your business by delivering to your friends out of the back of your Peugeot pickup um, Tell me about those days. I mean, was it, did you, what was the moment you it was thought? A,
1: it was a Citroen 2CV to start
0: Okay, with. right. Was it? I okay. Was a,
1: yeah, I was proper hippie, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was 93. I suppose I'd been going for about five years and it definitely wasn't my idea. It was actually some friends who were running a box scheme and had been for a couple of years, 20 miles away. And they said, you know, you really should try this guy. And I, ju- I just thought actually they were v- really incredible persistent. I really I thought it was the most ridiculous idea. You know, I mean, you know, the, here we go, supermarkets were stocking ever more lines. Margaret Thatcher was in a power. It was all about, you know, if you've got the money, you can have the choice. And that's how we defined ourselves through what we bought. And it was all about choice and, and home delivery, be it of milk, fish, bread, was was going. So this was comp- the idea that you were going to deliver a box where the person had no choice about what went in it. Um, you know, it was seasonal, so it wasn't going to be coming from all around the world. And that was what was fashionable on the supermarket shelves. It was deeply contrary did your consultant, to everything.
0: Did your consultant kick my in inner there?
1: Consultant, my <laughs> inner consultant was definitely telling me this was a bloody stupid idea. And, and I, I suppose, you know, some of the things in business that follow have all the kind of logic on their side, just don't work. And sometimes the crazy stuff does. And the only way you ever know is by taking whatever it is that you want to sell, the product, the service, and actually going presenting that to someone and getting them to give you some money for it. Asking them a questionnaire, you know, about their behavior may give you some information, but people fill in questionnaires pretending that they're the person that they'd like to be not the person that they are
0: (laughs) god that's such a good tip isn't it and so i'm deeply
1: skeptical of market research you know actually get out there and meet your customers and try and sell them something or watch if you're as bad a salesman as me watch someone else trying to sell them something and and that then you really know about what they value and if you come back and talk to them again after they've been using your product and really try and understand how it fits into their lives you know yeah i think that's that's what you need to do can't remember how i got onto that
0: But no, I I think it's such a, you know, a lot of small businesses think about how, you know, we've got to understand, you know, they look to big businesses, you know, you can't help it, you know, you look to big big businesses Mm. thinking, well, of course, their success is because of, you know, the market research or the advertising budget or all these sorts of things. And I think what we forget is actually, you know, the nimbleness, the ability yeah, to go, actually, yeah. here's my product. I'm going to go and see. They're either going to be a bit rude about it, but actually I might as well rip the plaster off there and then, hmm. or I'm onto something actually. Yeah. And and it's actually that consumer face to face or Absolutely. that direct I, link.
1: I did all the deliveries myself for the first two or even three years and it was uh and it was you know I remember the first week walking up the garden path I can remember the house I can almost see the tiles across their (laughs) lawn I walked up knocked on the door and presented this box and the person really cared about what the stuff tasted like and 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 how it was grown and and what it was like for us growing it and the fact that it was local and yes they did care about the price but not that much and Mm -hmm. actually it was pretty damn cheap anyway Mm -hmm. and um I guess I knew straight away that I was, I was on to something, really. Something. And it really, it just grew on its own for five years or so, just quietly. You know, the numbers grew from yeah, 30 the first week to, I think we got up to about 2,000, really, before we sort of really started taking it seriously. Before you
0: needed to sleep. <laughs> before you did all your deliveries in the morning. <laughs>
1: I, no, I wasn't doing that. I think I did deliver- <laughs> deliveries until we got to two or three hundred or something.
0: We're proud to partner with NatWest. They support small businesses in so many ways. Just one of these ways is through Backer Business. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. Listen to the end of this podcast to find out more. With a continued commitment to small businesses, NatWest in a world first give away the rest of this ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner.
2: Hello Holly and co-listeners. My name is Lucy and I'm the maker behind Mama Leopard jewellery. I set up Mama Leopard, a nod to my trendy mum, in January 2020 from my home studio in Bristol. I hand make sustainable, stylish and super lightweight earrings out of colourful cork fabric. Cork is an amazing material, 100% natural, renewable and recyclable. It is one of the best alternatives to leather and plastic. Everything we do, from our unique flora and fauna themed designs to our 100% recycled or recyclable packaging, is inspired by the benefits of nature. This is why we want to give 10% of our profits to the Avon Wildlife Trust, to protect wildlife and our environment. Your support means the world to us. At Mama Leopard, we offer an alternative to fast fashion, original cork earrings that are made to last. Find our eco-friendly earrings online at www.mamalepagewellery.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening.
0: If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses have and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. Is it right that Riverford now delivers 47,000 boxes each week?
1: I think it's a bit more than that. It's more like something over 50, yeah. Okay,
0: 50,000. Those are quite astounding numbers. What do you think has been the secret to the success? Why do you think people love these boxes so much? Um, I think we've really been
1: pretty true to our sort of founding principles. You know, we are the real McCoy. I mean, I do still go out in the field and grow vegetables. You know, most of the people who work at, at Riverford really do know about vegetables. We you know, we love vegetables, we cook them in our staff canteen, we run restaurants and try and encourage other people to cook vegetables, we run a team of chefs, you know, we really care about what we do in more and quite you know, and that's what gets us up in the morning and keeps us going you know it's mm. this is what we want to do and then how can we you know make a profit out of it so i think a genuine sort of passion for what we do and just actually being really bloody good at it
2: mm. you know that's the
1: boring bit you can have the values and the you know all the ideas you like but unless you you know you really do the hard yards the absolute attention to detail everything you know matters you know the, the you know the consistent quality and and you know, and just waking up every day determined to do a little bit better than you did yesterday, that sort of incremental improvement. You know, I mean, our kind of thing when we became employee-owned, I guess we'll talk about that later. Mm. But anyway, we we hang it on. We do it our way. And the we is that we're in it together. You, the do it is the actual doing of it. Tangible things, which many people would find really tedious and boring, but really focusing on doing those details well. And the our way is you know we will look around and at how other people run similar mm-hmm. businesses and we'll try to understand why we do it their way and if it doesn't make sense we'll do it another way but all our kind of values hang off those those three
0: and, t- and tell me, you produce a lot of what you grow in Britain, um, but you have a farm in France as well, yeah. yeah, where you grow in warmer regions. And during the British hungry gap, I'd love to know about this in late <laughs> spring. And so, for those listening to this podcast, you know, firstly, can I just understand what is a hungry gap? Hungry
1: gap. Okay, so generally, most of the planting happens between in England between. March and July you're pretty well finished you know and then the crops grow and you be picking them through the summer and the autumn and then uh, the winter and then you get into the spring and, and all your cauliflowers have finished you cabbages and kales will want to start running to seed your potatoes they're starting to wake up and think it's spring so they're all sprouting your Swedes are sprouting because they're biannuals and they want to go to seed as well and you end up with the vegetables that you've got available in late March but more particularly April and May are very limited and often not of good quality I mean, there's some things that are lovely. So we're just coming into the purple sprouting broccoli season. You know, asparagus will be along soon. But it's pretty limited. And that's what we call the hungry gap. It's typically April, May. And it goes on into June, actually. And you can store vegetables in cold stores. You can have techniques to plant them earlier. You can put up polytunnels or you can import. right? Or you can, you know, every all our customers tell us they just want to eat UK produce all the time. And... um yeah and 93% of them are hypocrites because uh, we do have a UK only box <laughs> it's never exceeded oh, so <laughs> never exceeded 7% in sales and i tell you 7% is uh, it's never exceeded 2% until last year so it is so things are changing i'm, yeah. I'm really encouraged well, i'm hoping that we're getting to the end of the era when everyone thinks they can have as so long as they've got money in their pocket, they can have whatever they want, whenever mm. they want, and almost pay whatever they mm. want for it, and have it delivered whatever time they want. And that's perfectly okay, and 10 billion people can live on this planet like that, which we patently cannot. You know, we no. do need to expect, accept some, you know, constraints on us, and quite frankly, make some compromises, and, you know... What we eat is a pretty key part of that.
0: Well, I was going on to say, and I really would like to know, for those listening, how can we eat and consume more ethically? We call it voting with your money. At Holly mm. and Co, mm. I'm actually where I'm going to show you. I'm going to turn around, <laughs> and you can see the back of my jacket. Vote with your is. money. Back of my jacket. Vote with your money. I've had sewn into the back. Because I 100% for the next 30 years will be talking about voting with your money. Started not on the high street, now with Holly & Co. And you actually call it voting with your fork. Mm. So I want to create you a jacket now with voting with your (laughs) fork. I'm going to have like a fork put on the back of it. I don't know if you'll wear it. But tell me about how we can eat and consume in a way that is, well, what you've learnt.
1: It's very difficult, actually. And... I'll come back to the premise because I don't entirely agree with what you're saying or I just mm-hmm. want to challenge it a little yeah. bit. But in terms of our industry and food, if you want to, you know, the, I think the main issue that we should be focused on now is climate change and climate breakdown. And the biggest thing you can do there is to eat less meat. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's not a simple argument and there are good arguments for high welfare, grass fed beef and lamb and, and so on. But as a customer, consumer food citizen i'd rather say that it's it's actually really hard to be sure what you're getting you know so and quite frankly you don't know what you're getting when you go to a restaurant they all lie anyway and a lot of retailers lie as well Mm -hmm. um so the complete absence of 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 the uh, food trading standards which used to be quite a potent force and have i assume just been massively underfunded because you never hear anything about them anymore but anyway yeah so eat less meat you, know, try and eat seasonally and locally. We don't mm-hmm. have to eat tomatoes in in January. They taste awful anyway. Mm-hmm. They have an enormous carbon footprint. You know we do sell them, and uh you know it's a debate that we're having internally about whether whether we should so yeah eat 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 seasonally, but that's often quite difficult to know what is mm-hmm. <laughs> you know because again uh, it's not always labeled um properly. And when you find a, a business that you really do trust, that you don't, you know, are pretty sure isn't mm-hmm. lying to you, really support it, mm-hmm. you know, give them a little, a bit of forgiveness mm-hmm. sometimes that they mm-hmm. you know, particularly if they're, they're smaller businesses and, and, and really support them because by God, they need your support. I mean, ev- everything's, everything's stacked against you in the, in the food chain, uh, as a small producer, it is incredibly difficult to, to stay in business. So I really would, mm. yeah, when you, when you get the opportunity to support and, and 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 ask difficult questions as well. You know, when you the butcher tells you, "Oh, it's a South Devon from you know such and such a farm," you know, really probe down into that and ask. You know, when did you buy the carcass? You know, where was it killed? You know, did you buy the whole carcass? Because so often they are just lying to you. Mm. You know, oh, with the fish shed. It all comes from. It all comes from Lou. And um, oh, really? God, we've had gales for the last week. They're all day boats. How did you manage to land it? I mean, there's just so much. You know. Mm. You know it, it really, sorry, I'm probably being a bore. No, on it. I, but I It's think, something you with know a so kind of misrepresentation. Because there is so much misrepresentation, the people who really are the, the real thing find it very difficult to differentiate themselves. So it really does matter. You know, honesty really does matter. And and I'd really urge people to not be fobbed off with And that's what easy, I mean by voting with yeah, your money. Yeah. As
0: far as I'm concerned, yeah. it is about understanding the founders, the producers, yeah. getting to know the story behind the business and then saying consciously, I am going to put my money to that person who I will have to wait one week mm. for this item. I'm not going to deal with Amazon Prime or I'm not going to do, you know, I know that I could and I could get it tomorrow. But actually, I am actually going to vote with my money in that way. We have to wake ourselves up, as you said. And I actually think, you know, you know when the seasons are with the vegetables. You you understand this. a lot of us don't, you know. And so actually, we we need to somehow have this maybe, unfortunately, it's not in our schools, Mm. is it? We don't learn the seasons, you know, cooking, and all these things have been stripped out. So it's interesting because I think there's a lot of people who want to know about this. I
1: think there is a tr- tremendous appetite, and you know, if and and that should be possible to transfer that down the food chain to the producers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a tremendous appetite for producers who do things well. You know, look after animals well, look after the land well. um, You know, do produce things seasonally, and and uh, but you do need honesty for that for that supply chain communication to work and uh, it's very difficult to get that through a supermarket of course because mm. you know it's a it's not a lie that they could be prosecuted for but you know when tesco's you know make up the name of a farm which sounds like a farm and say so, they imply their letters is from that farm, and it, and it's just a figment of the a brand manager's imagination. And how
0: are they allowed to do that?
1: Uh, it staggers me. It does have a farm name at the end of it. I would say that that was, you know, duplicit. Of course. And so, but um, apparently, it's not illegal. And there was a lot of stuff in the papers about it. And you'd think, oh, well, at least they'll stop doing it. But they didn't. <laughs> it's like we're living in this kind of post-modern age where everyone's got used to being lied to. Mm. And they almost mm. kind of don't care what the truth mm. is anymore. It, I, I, it, it baffles me, really. I... I mm. um, it it baffles I, I, me that uh, people are happy to be lied to in that way, or see. We're slightly, or, or sorry, that's...
0: slightly. Well, no, we're slightly asleep at the wheel. Sometimes yeah, yeah. we are busy. We can have it all, and so actually, it's about well saying, don't have it all. Start waking up. I think it's going to be a very interesting. But I'd love to move on. You're obviously a very bright guy who's driven by passion to use your business as a force of good and something we do talk a lot about Mm. on this podcast Mm. and i make um, no apology about it you know i i believe it is the future i think we're Mm. very much in tune there that actually um this is actually can i stop you there yes of
1: course (laughs) It's this. you are right and businesses can be a force for good and and voting with your pound or your fork you know is is important but let's not let our politicians off the hook. Mm. There is a there is a mm. real limit mm. to that. I mean, a lot of the problems mm. the world faces really are structural, and and mm-hmm. our politicians, to some extent, are large businesses. But largely, our politicians really do need to take on the responsibility that they're elected mm-hmm. for and, and and actually govern. So, you know, we clearly have a problem with burning fossil fuels. You know, tax the bloody things. Mm. You know, even mm. if it's unpopular, tax them. And and, and there, mm. there are so many things which can only be... I mean, it would be great if you buy organic vegetables, less pesticides mm. will be used, but that's 3% of the mm. area. You know, let's properly regulate the pesticides mm. that are used on the other 97%. You know, we do need a government that is prepared to take on its responsibilities and the 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 issues that we face with the environment are so complex and so long to long term i mean i'll use an example marine pollution i mean i was out on a mussel farm in the english channel with a friend who runs this thing and there's just plastic everywhere there's plastic wrapped around his, his muscle rope it is not plastic bags it's not plastic bottles it is fishing tackle mm. you know over 50 percent of the plastic pollution in the channel is in you know, a Bloody do something about government. Mm. Don't ban plastic straws in Westminster. It's trivial and irrelevant. It may mm. be what the Daily Mail's mm. talking about, but it's not what you need to be doing to mm. save, you know, the future of our mm. children. I mean, mm. you know, let's, you know, have some sensible policies mm. that are long-term that are really considered... Mm. And, I, you know, anyway, I just do feel that we have a massive failure you, you of are. government. And, and I don't think, and I think there's this kind of smokescreen put up that mm-hmm. citizens, consumers can solve the problem by the choices they make or how they spend their money. They can go some way, but far more important, you know, let's not let our government off the hook. They need mm. to legislate.
0: I just think, yes. It's that battle, isn't it, between, you know, there is what you feel that you can do. Mm. you know, what you feel is a good example Mm. to your children. And I think we cannot deny that actually becoming conscious and conscious consumers can only be good. But exactly what you're saying is correct. Do not forget that actually, all of this is just surface if we don't Mm. get to the heart of the issues. Our yeah. power is in actually who we vote for. And, I'm afraid and, it, it, it and, is, and not yeah. necessarily just with vote with your money or your yeah. fork. Yeah. Vote for who is yeah. going to yeah. make we change. We need
1: honest politicians with a long view instead of people who are masters at sound bites, which is what we've elected at the moment.
0: We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With a Three Means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their partners to help give your business a lift in those early days. Now over to a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. Nick Park, the creator of Wallace and Gromit, had never heard anyone going into the TV or film industry from his community. It just wasn't an option. He remembered vividly, thinking, wow, I'm just a boy from Preston and people from Preston don't do that. However, Nick started on this journey at just 13 years old, making films with the help of his mother and her home movie camera, never once thinking that this passion would become a reality but with his father's support Nick pushed himself to follow his diamond in life creating comedy through illustration. An English animator, director and writer Nick Park now has four Academy Awards to his name. It seems that a boy from Preston and a father's unwavering support can make a dream come true. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co To discover more about business plans, search 3MeansBusiness. So going back to doing good, um, I've interviewed quite a few B Corp businesses now on this podcast, and most recently, Joe Fairley, who created Green and Black's Chocolate yeah. and um, and was one of the first fair trade products in the UK. But I'm also um, just unbelievably proud to say that you're the first founder of an employee owned business on this podcast. We've had lots of different sort of firsts, um, but this is the first. And I really would like to delve into it because we haven't explored this at all all on this podcast I remember reading all about it in June 2018 when you sold 74% of your business so that it was owned by your employees and it stopped me in my tracks I I've had visions of this type of model or or, or ways of working in my past Um, and I would love to know how it came about and how it works
1: Okay. Well, it came about over a period of quite about 15 years. Um, Well, it probably came about over my whole life, actually. Okay. (laughs) But while I've been running my own business, I have, you know, experienced a real growing revulsion with business, actually. That's not too strong a word. I really do mean it with the standard practices that I see of large businesses around me um you know my brief time of dealing with supermarkets bankers utilities traders anyway i just you know it it just i just found i just want nothing to do with that and and you know i suppose furthermore i i have absolutely no confidence that any more money is going to make me any happier so i'm not interested in accumulating any more you know personal wealth possessions and so on um and i've always been trying you know you know i suppose i feel that the, the the direction that a business takes should be primarily controlled by the people who work within it i think those are the best people to to make those decisions and and um and the beneficiaries of its success should be well it should be split between those who work within it and those who provide the capital um but i think mainly those who work within it actually Uh, And so, yeah, I guess you can infer from that that my politics are pretty well to the left. I am a reluctant capitalist. You know, I can look at, you know, the Soviet Union from my, you know... uh history classes and so on. And, you know, it was a disaster. So, you know, I, I, do, I do think it's incredibly... Autonomy is an incredibly important, you know, human instinct. And autonomy thrives more under, you know, capitalism than it does under communism. And that's why I guess I'm a reductant capitalist. But but anyway, that was the sort of background to the decision. And, and I suppose over, I went and visited... You know, cooperatives, and and uh, in the end, I started going to see employee-owned companies, and and you know, I could see a model there which was pragmatically working. And I, obviously, the John Lewis partnership is the largest one in this country. Um, anyway, and you know, after a lot of research, that was the route we chose to go down. And then, and then it went. That was you know, we were getting quite close to it in two thousand and seven, eight, and then we had the recession, and then we had loads of you know massive IT failures in the business that completely had us on our knees for years. And it was only four or five years ago that really there was space
2: to think again about about
1: it. And uh, my uh, two of my directors, you know, took me aside and said, "Come on, guy, are we going to do this? You know, you know, you've been talking about it for long enough." And I said yes. And it was really then. From then on, it was a real sort of team effort. And they did Charlotte, the HR people director and Rob and managing director. There are lots of other people that were involved in it as well. Just did a fantastic job of steering us through it in a way that I make my decisions way too quickly. <laughs> they are much more careful and you know persistent in doing the research and indeed in changing the culture of the organisation because mm. we really had a long way to go. I had all these aspirations about how I wanted the business to be run and the engagement I wanted from the staff and the sharing of the profits. But, you know, quite frankly, it, it was bullshit a lot of it. I mean, we weren't delivering on it. And uh, and they together we have helped to make that kind of come true to formulate this structure where the staff really do co-owners now really do control the the direction that the business will take and they are you know they're the ones who benefit from the profits that it makes. So we have a structure which is quite similar to the John Lewis partnership. No one owns shares directly they are owned in trust and it seems to be working fantastically well. And I think partly because, you know, I mean, you might say selfishly they have more to gain from it. Actually, I don't really think that's really mm-hmm. what's making it work. It's the kind of basic kind of human respect and the consultation over decisions and, and the fact that they do have more autonomy and 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 control and that they are actually listened to because the key thing is we did engage a coach uh, to try and bring about this kind of cultural change because we were actually quite an old fashioned business and in, in a lot of behaviours within the business you know we could tell a great story <laughs> but actually the reality of working at Riverford didn't really live up to it and I heard that over and over again and I found it very upsetting and I really wanted to change it and sometimes I got quite angry with my managers that Actually, I didn't have the skills and nor did they, for me, that, you know, I, I didn't think any of it could be down to me. You know, I mean, I'm a maverick entrepreneur. Surely I can lose my temper now and then. And, mm. you know, um absolutely you can't because, you know, that is bullying behaviour. That is, you know, so the other directors around the table think it's OK for them to do that. They go out and throw their toys around and everyone's throwing their toys around as some poor person down the line packing cauliflowers or picking leeks out in the field is suffering the brunt of it so it did actually start at the top and uh with me and then the directors and then the senior managers and there is the culture has changed hugely so we've gone from a staff uh the the uh, turnover staff gone from uh 36 percent to 21 percent in Mm. in 18 months you know the culture has changed hugely it's it's a much much better place to work and that has as much to do with investing in culture as it has to do with employee ownership though it was a kind of catalyst for a change in culture yes I think. yes exactly yeah, yeah. and
0: when you had to look back at yourself because you know so many businesses will just keep on going mm. right so what you're talking about you were checking yourself lots of businesses never have that moment that they have to check yourself what was that like personally for you to have to really reflect on yourself and your behavior and and, and then the value that that would give the company
1: well, initially, it was a bit of a shock. The acknowledgement. I remember, you know, I went for a, a walk with the coach, <laughs> and she told me in no uncertain terms that my behaviour had to change, and these were the things that we should be uh, focusing on. And initially, I suppose, you know, for it, you know, it was maybe it was a bit humiliating. Even, mm. you know, there we go. I'm of course, a, you know, but actually, that was really didn't last. You know, it didn't even last. Didn't he, it was minutes, so that, mm-hmm. and then yeah, let's you know let's do it, and and it is, and it and I have just so enjoyed the journey, you know, mm. the learning. I mean, mm. you know, I'm going to be sixty this year, and I feel I'm still learning as much as mm. I was when I was at school, mm. and 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 you know, some of that has been quite kind of deep stuff, I suppose, for me and yeah. changing my own behaviour. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely made me better at work. Actually, people have been so appreciative of the change they've seen, you know, they didn't think it would ever change. I wish they'd bloody told me about what was wrong with my behaviour a bit earlier, mm. actually. And, and um, you know, so that's been very gratifying. I think it's made me, you know, a better husband. It's made me a better mm. father. It's, you know, made me better to my friends. It, it's, it's, you know, we mm. are, there's no separation when you go to work. You're still the same person. You've still got the same stuff inside you, the same intrinsic values, and... You know, show it. You know, mm. be compassionate. Be loving. You know, you don't. You know, you don't. You don't have to just be a brute at work and then go along and bounce your child on your knee at home. You know, I mean, you know, take some
0: of it to work. And the this change from you. This change within the corporate structure, this idea that now they're participating in the future has also been fantastic, as you were saying, for business. You know, your increase in terms of, am I right in saying that when I was looking at this research, your company reported its strongest financial growth in 30 years? Is that right? Uh,
1: We did. We have um, been making pretty decent profits um, the last 18 months or so. And sales are, you know, roughly 10 or 11% up the last two years. Um, Yeah, so it's going pretty well. Not a coincidence. I mean, well, you know, some people might say, you know, you're in the home delivery e-commerce sector, you know, which is obviously growing probably faster than that. Some people might say you should be doing better. But, you know, I measure it in, you know, we are, I think, almost the only home delivery food business which is profitable. I mean, most of them are just propped up by VC money and most of them will fall over. So that in itself is 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 an achievement. And to be doing it without compromising our values, you know, I think that's the real achievement. And then doing it in a way which feels, you know, sustainable in terms of the environment and people, I have more pride in that, I suppose, than than the fact that we're that we're just that we're growing.
0: And tell me, for people listening, so this business owned by their or partly owned by their employees Is this something that you can only do as you're bigger? Could this be a model that people listening think, actually, you know what, I'm going to set up my whole company in a different way?
1: No, I think you could do it from the start. I mean, there are lots of models for, you know, social enterprise and and I guess... um, there is, I guess, that thing in the early stages of business when you're really going through that sort of entrepreneurial thing and that ridiculous, you know, drive, which I can remember that I did. You know, I could work 70 hours a week. You know, I could go to bed at one o'clock in the morning having delivered my strawberries to the wholesalers and get up at five ready to organise the staff and when they came in. And you have to
0: do that, don't you? I that think, is you know, the bit. I don't that-
1: know. I, no doubt I would have been a better father if I hadn't done that. But I'm. I'm not sure... I mean, maybe I would. I'm not sure that I would have had a business, actually. Even I don't think one, I've interviewed
0: yeah. one person on this podcast, and I only wrote on Instagram yesterday about mm. it. I haven't seen a successful business that hasn't had that founder doing that thing. But as you said, going back, if you had to then say, mm. well, that was partly owned by other people, maybe it doesn't work. So maybe you have to mature through that stage.
1: Yeah, that, it, there, there is an argument for that, I think. And... Um, you know, I founded a cooperative in the uh, 90s and uh, I don't think it would ever have got off the ground if it hadn't been... I, you know, really, I drove it through <laughs> <laughs> for the first two years and then they voted me off the board, you know, and quite right too. It was definitely time for me to take a back seat. But, you know, without that, I think that's actually a fair call that that's probably mm. the
0: case, yeah. You still own 26% of your business. You're still hugely involved. Um, you have launched other inspiring ventures, such as the renowned Riverford Field Kitchen Restaurant. Mm. You've also published two cookbooks. You've now published an online magazine. When I read this, Wicked Leaks. (laughs) I mean, this is genius. This made me smile for the whole evening last night. Wicked Leaks, where you can get news and your insight into sustainable food and ethical business. You're obviously hugely passionate about farming. You've won BBC Radio 4 Farmer of the Year twice. Where do you see the future of farming heading? Because I read on your post on Instagram that farming nowadays in Britain contributes just 0.7% of GDP, yeah. whereas it used to contribute in 1850, 22%. Do you think it will creep up again?
1: I, I I really don't think 0.7% of GDP spent on farming and producing food and managing the culture side is consistent with a sustainable approach to just looking after the countryside, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I do think we are going to have to pay more for our food, if you know, if we want quality food produced in a way which you know, delivers animal welfare and, and environmental stewardship. Uh, I certainly don't think it can go down anymore. But you know what? It really wouldn't make any difference to anyone. Point seven percent So if it went up to 1%, mm. farmers would be getting almost 50% more. But the point is that, you know, what... <laughs> Did the, that- the um and that would make a huge difference, you know we could all look forward to look after our hedgerows and plant trees and so on. You would need legislation to make sure that it didn't just go into landowners' pockets, but it you know it would make a huge huge difference so of course what happens though is that you don't pay point seven percent of GDP on food, you pay ten percent and and that's what you know all the rest of it is value added after it leaves the farm gate you know retailers packers food service. You know that's 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 where the money goes, and uh, and those you know tend to be the more profitable sectors of the food chain as well.
0: Tell me though, after I've listened to you and after I've listened to this, you know, a burning question for me is: what can I do to make to help this? What can I do to change? Who can I? What's the voting? How can I campaign? What what is it that because you I can feel anyone listening to this can feel. You feel this mm. passion. I do, I do
1: think uh, uh, you know supporting the various community supported agriculture schemes around, be they box schemes and so on, is is, is a uh, is a pretty good start. There are some wonderful examples of you know. There's a business in uh, a co-op in Manchester, the Acorn Grocery, which actually I went and um, volunteered at last year. I was so fascinated by their their business model. So. And when you find you know they are such honest, good people selling fantastic food at affordable prices in a not particularly swanky bit of Manchester, you know, if you have a business like that, near you you really you know support it and get involved. but yeah, maybe grow some food yourself, you know mm-hmm. even I do think even if you have a you know you live in a flat and you've got a window box, grow some parsley or something, you know, mm-hmm. and I think any, engagement with the growing process and with nature gets you closer to nature and get, just gets you thinking in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's going, I'm going to make a bold statement. I think it will make you a better person.
0: <laughs> and tell me, it doesn't feel like you're slowing down anytime soon. Are you a visionary? Do you have a vision?
1: Um, uh, I'm a visionary with a short attention span, you might say, which is probably not very helpful. I do. I, I really do feel strongly about trying to... Um, help other people starting smaller businesses to use them as a force for good in the world. So I guess what I'm spending more and more of my time doing now is actually kind of facilitating other people to do what they want to do. So on the farm, which Gita and my wife bought recently with the proceeds of selling the business, you know, we have various people running their own businesses on it and I quite like just kind of being in the background now and if I can use some of the experience that I've you know, built up over 30 or 40 years to help them, well, that's great. And I, I may invest in some other smaller businesses. Um, I do campaign quite a lot around food and farming issues. You may have gathered from what I've, some of the stuff I've said. I have, I've just got so frustrated by the last three or four years and just hearing so much tosh coming out of mm-hmm. DEFRA, mainly from Michael Gove, actually, he said all the right stuff. You know, now he's gone, you might as well just tear, torn it all up, he's just wasted all our efforts. And I suppose I'm kind of feeling why on earth should I engage with that again? So my, really my focus now is on trying to live a good life and help others around me to do likewise.
0: It has been fascinating. You have um, definitely made me think and I don't know, you know, always lots of people take so much out of this podcast, but I take so much out of every guest and you've really, really made me think. I end these interviews with the analogy that running your own business is like being on an epic roller coaster. What would you say has been a low on this business journey?
1: It was very lonely at times, and I, I can and I did work. I think excessive hours at the beginning, and I can remember just being so tired and feeling so on my own. Actually, feeling God was against me. I can remember collapsing, tired, in a field of potatoes with a tractor that had just burst a tire and a leaking sprayer, and uh, and and weeping actually. And I think that was about as low as I got.
0: <laughs> and 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 on the the opposite, what moment would you say has been a a high for you?
1: I think actually I do remember one of the sort of you know high points was that I took after a few years, twenty years or so, and everyone telling oh it's all very well you growing organically but it won't feed the world, and I went off to and I took six weeks around Central Africa and uh, ended up in Uganda and I met this farmer uh, who was growing what we would call probably call it permaculture in the west, but and he just opened my eyes to a system of agriculture which was just really in harmony with nature and uh, he was obviously so happy farming in that way with a you know in a it didn 't even look like a farm, it looked like a forest, it was such a mixture of things, and he had a really good lifestyle, it was incredibly productive and I suppose to realize, yes, we can feed seven billion people, we could feed. Eleven billion people, and we could do it in a way, and look after nature, and not be, and be sequestering carbon, and be respectful to each other. Uh, it is possible. We even we know how to do it. That must have that been did, a moment. It was. There. It was. It did. But yeah, you know, and uh, you know, I have to say, you know, I'm the one with the Oxford education. He was a better farmer by a long way.
0: How fascinating! And someone that you think has inspired you for me to interview. Oh.
1: Oh, yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm going to give you another one who's put his business into um, employee ownership, which is Julian Richer. I think you'd really enjoy talking to him.
0: And what does he... Richer Sounds. Ah, right, Okay.
1: Honestly, he's a human dynamo. He's extraordinary. He's so original in his outlook and really good fun with it, but incredibly, you know, driven ethically, very, very strong views and really prepared to put his money where his mouth is. No, I'm I'm full of admiration for him and I think he would be a great person to interview.
0: Well, we are now at the end. Um, I just want to, before I hand over to you for your letter to your Mm. younger self, I just want to thank you. You have been a ball of energy where sometimes, you know, we get slightly caught up in our... I don't know you're in that sort of rhythm where you're saying the same things and I think what you've done for me certainly is given me a nice wake up call to it is all fine if you want to use voting with your money like sound bites and all these sorts of things but you're right you know there is also a need for us to talk about that bigger thing it's not the straws it's the nets in the sea it's 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 opening our eyes and and thank you for being so Honest and clear with that message. So I hand over to you. Um, and thank you very much for anything you're going to say. Um, it's just been an utter pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, Holly. I, uh, it's quite personal. <laughs> I hope that's appropriate. This is
0: exactly the moment where we, we absolutely are on safe hands here.
1: All right. It's not, not really that much about business. But anyway, here we go. This is a letter to my 16 year old self, which was. Probably, you know, quite an awkward time in my life. I had an agonising adolescence. But anyway, there is quite a journey ahead. The second half will be better than the first. Sorry, you will always be a freak on the fringes. I blame your dad. So you better learn to enjoy it. I know you sometimes think you just want to be normal, like everyone else, to fit in. But do you really? Well, it's not going to happen. And you'd be crap at it anyway. Don't become a policeman or a merchant seaman or even a doctor. The rules will kill you. You need to be outside most of your life. You will make your own business with your own rules. Treading your own path will be hard and sometimes lonely, but some of it it will be great. Try not to be in such a hurry. Enjoy the steps along the way. When it is good, linger for a while. You will have time to do everything. Don't spend your youth mucking out pigs to please your father. Leave home as soon as you can and don't come back soon. Find yourself away from those who who have already decided who you are. Come back only when you are ready and ready to appreciate your family and the land that you will tend. You will spend half of your life seeking the approval of your father. The truth is he always thought you were okay, but it will take until his dying day to tell you. Don't resent him he did his best with what he had don't take yourself so seriously don't rush to grow up you are a speck an eye blink one in four billion nine in your lifetime get comfortable with your ego laugh at yourself being different doesn't make you better or worse than others just different mole valley farmers is okay for wellies but don't buy your jeans there wear tweed it suits you and keep that sewing machine The spots will pass, and even with the scars, you will one day come to realise that you aren't ugly. Your thighs are swarthy, not thick. Your neck strong, not thuggish. Someone will find your awkwardness endearing. Wait for them. You will be a late starter. Try not to worry about that. Don't be in a hurry. You will grow into a good and lovable man in the end. Wait for the right one. Picking the right person to share your journey with will be the most important decision of your life. Believe in love. Don't be ashamed of your masculinity, but don't be defined by either. Wear makeup sometimes. Sex is not a competitive performance sport, more of a language to learn and enjoy. When your children come, cherish them and enter their world sometimes. It is better to be 100% there for them 10% of the time than 10% there for them half of the time. Let fads and fashion pass you by, but embrace the digi- digital age. It's going to be huge. Listen more, really listen. Enjoy people for what they are in all their diversity. Don't be judgmental. Try not to be hard on yourself or on others. There is nothing clever in, in identifying faults in you or others. Look for the good in everyone, including yourself. Life would be bland if we were all angels. We aren't. But most of us have goodness in us. The challenge is to find it. Don't be so bloody rational. What you do will define your life, but try to value yourself for what you are as well. Be frivolous sometimes. You don't have to be useful all the time. Be open to life, grab every experience, and bring all you can from it. Trust and take risks. You will recover from the inevitable hurt and disappointment. Life passes by the afraid, the closed, and the arrogant. Plant oaks, beech, walnuts, and hazel, Measure your success in what lasts and what you have done for others, not in your bank balance. Don't be ashamed of your wealth. Enjoy it and be generous. There are no pockets in a shroud. The reason you can spell, the reason you can't spell, read so slowly and mix up your P's and B's has a name, dyslexia. Word processors will come to your rescue in a few years. The strange thing is that you will one day love the words that have made school so hard. You will live through turbulent times and see humanity balancing on the edge of self-destruction. You will develop a voice and have influence. Learn to direct your anger, don't demonise your foes, and be gratuitously offensive less often. Do, Do what you can for those who will follow, but don't carry the world on your shoulders. Keep a diary, a short one, your life will be full. Look after yourself and go well. Your older, happier and content self.
0: Really so beautiful, possibly one of the most beautiful letters that's been on this podcast and throughout this interview what I've noticed is how open you've been as a strapping man um, <laughs> looking for your father's admiration and and how honest you've been and how that has come to you possibly later on but I just applaud you for being open coming up to 60 to change and what you've done and this is an inspirational moment in my life to hear this letter um, of your vulnerabilities, but also to what you've done in business and how you're changing thing and your passion. And I just can't tell you that was highly moving and I thank you so much for sharing.
1: Thanks, Holly. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Before you go, here's a little more about Backer Business. Last year, NatWest's CEO, Alison Rose, wrote the Rose Review and discovered that if women launched and scaled businesses at the same rate as men, it would represent an untapped £250 billion opportunity for the UK economy. Isn't that unbelievable? So they created Backer Business, managed by Crowdfunder. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. To find out more information, search NatWest Backer Business. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, if it has helped you along your own journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing this episode and podcast? Your support means the world and it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love.
2: Bow your head and let
1: your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring
2: your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come